What's up, guys? It's David Hess from the Rising Above podcast. Have you ever thought or dreamed about starting a podcast? Well, look no further. Anchor has all the tools necessary to record a podcast from your computer or phone. You heard that right. They make it so simple. When you host your podcast on Anchor, they will distribute your podcast on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Honestly, it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place, which is why I host on Anchor. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hey everyone, this episode contains elements of physical and emotional abuse and may not be suitable for all. Please be advised. I was in a constant state of fear and that took that took time, that took time to heal. Um, I, I, um, one of my friends... We were talking and he just, he was like, you know, you're so broken. And that hurt me so much. I mean, it was, I believe it was true. And it's one of those things where sometimes you need to hear the hard truth. And, and I just kind of sat there and I was like, yeah, I am broken, but I'm not going to stay broken because he, You imagine that, you know, when someone says like their whole life shattered, you imagine glass breaking, like an expensive vase getting thrown to the ground. And I I looked over at him and I was like, you know, I'm not made of glass, right? Like, I'm not a vase. I'm not a fancy, pretty vase that you put flowers in. I'm more of a Lego house. And it's, it sounds silly and cheesy and it's not pretty and fancy, but When you smash a Lego house, you can rebuild it. Hey everyone, the voice you just heard is Jessica. Jessica talks about her life and what it was like in an abusive relationship. She offers advice to others who feel like they can't tell anyone. I hope through her voice, you find strength, inspiration, and hope. Just know that it is okay to speak up. I'm your host, David Hess. This is Rising Above. Enjoy the show. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Rising Above podcast, and uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your story with me again, <laughs> um, as it didn't work out the first time, but I greatly appreciate you coming back on. Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about yourself, um, go ahead. <laughs> well, it's great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. Um, this is, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still a little bit nervous. This is the first time I've publicly shared my story, and it's kind of conflicting and I, I know there's a lot of, there's a stigma for abuse victims and there's a shame there. And that's not the reason that I haven't shared my story. For me, it's more of, I don't want to, um, I don't want to hurt my children mainly. And I don't want to hurt other family members and friends who, who love my, my former husband. And so I don't want to cause any pain. And also I do, struggle with saying, um, you know, anything that's negative, especially to such a degree, I feel bad saying anything bad about somebody who isn't here to defend themselves. But at the same time, I know there are so many other women out there who are suffering women who are in bad situations. And it's complicated because to someone who has never been abused or never been in an abusive situation, they think, oh, just call the police, just leave. 
go somewhere safe. And it's not always that simple. There isn't always a way out right away. Sometimes it takes time. And so to all of the women out there and men and children, there are lots of different different um, forms of abuse. It's not, you know, a lot of times you think, okay, uh, in domestic violence, it's the woman who's getting beat up by the husband, but that's not always the case. So to anyone out there who is being physically, verbally, sexually, whatever the case, however you're being abused, there's hope and God is out there and he loves you. And even if you can't see how things could ever be right, like there's a way and there's healing and it's available to you. For me, I was raised um, in a great home. I had Christian parents. We went to church. We were that model family that you're like, oh, like behind the scenes, everything's probably really messy, but they look perfect at church. But the truth was behind the scenes. I mean, we were flawed people, but we loved each other and we were happy together and we did awesome family vacations and just even just like Friday night game nights at home. Like I love my parents and I enjoyed being around them and my siblings, even when I was a teenager, like you want to go out with your friends, but at the same time I was happy to stay in cause we had so much fun together. And so going from that to, um, to getting married, I kind of expected that was what my life was going to be like as a wife and I was going to have that mom role and I wanted to work. But at the same time, like I was like, you know, I, no matter what I do with my life, I want to enjoy my children right now. Um, I'm a fitness instructor. I teach yoga and I really enjoy that. But, and I also, I work in real estate too, but my favorite part of my life is being with my family. And whenever I got married, I got married very young And that was one of those things of we were mature and we felt ready to get married and be parents. But at the same time, I now looking back, understand the wisdom of some people who advise you, hey, you know, grow up, you change a lot in your 20s. And we had um, the mentality of, hey, if we're going to change and grow, we'll do that together and you can change and, you know, we, we can go in the same direction, it'll be fine. But we did start to go kind of in different directions. And that caused a little bit of friction, as it would in any marriage. But the first seven years or so, we were really happy, I thought. My husband, however, he suffered from several mental illnesses. And I I explain that to people because I feel like to understand him as a complex person, you have to understand what he was dealing with. But at the same time, mental illness does not excuse bad behavior. Like I am, I'm, I, I don't mean to sound harsh about that, but at the same time, whatever your state of mind is, whatever your mental state is, you are responsible for your actions. And, um, and so with him, um, it was PTSD, bipolar, schizophrenia, and all of these came out of the blue, basically. Um, He told me when we were dating and when we were first married that he probably had ADHD and it had never been dealt with as a child. But other than that, like, he felt like he was fine. There's no, I'm sorry, there was was no signs at all? Really, no, like he had trouble sleeping, so he would take sleeping medication. Okay. But 
it would come in, it would go in phases. Like as a teenager and as a college student, he took it like almost every night. And then after we got married, we got a more regular sleep schedule for one thing. Cause work and everything just kind of, it's when you're in college, you have all kinds of, Oh, Hey, let's do this tonight. Let's go here. Let's <laughs> hang out. And you kind of lose track of time and it's easy to sacrifice your sleep. But then right. whenever you have a job and a family, it's like, okay, we have to sleep at night or we don't sleep at all. You can't sleep during <laughs> the day like you're at work. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not like, oh, we've got a two hour break between classes. We can take, we can catch a nap or something. There's no naps. Right. No babies. <laughs> and so that seemed to help regulate his sleep a little bit more. And so he, he kind of eased up off the medication, but other than having, you know, trouble sleeping and occasional bouts with insomnia, seemed pretty normal, like just your average guy. And then um, I was talking to one of my friends in the medical field about it whenever he started um, having some, just some panic attacks and PTSD episodes and stuff like that. And I was talking to her, I was like, hey, like, this is weird, right? And she's like, well, no, because a lot of times mental illness doesn't present itself until you're in your mid to late 20s. And so whenever, not that you should like, okay, like I'm not going to marry anybody until they're 30. That way I know they're good. Cause sometimes <laughs> it can present later as well, but it was right. just, it was just in that time that we realized we needed help and he needed help. And it was something that, um, for me it was difficult cause I did go through a little bit of like denial at first. I was like, no, like you're fine. You're perfect. You're wonderful. Like there's nothing wrong. And he was like, huh, there's something wrong. And um, then we we both began to see just with bipolar, there would be um, like manic phases where he was really hyper energetic and he would work a lot and he'd have a lot of ideas and a lot of um, just big plans and like, hey, let's do this, let's do that. And then a couple of weeks later, he would slump into um, a deep depressive state where he wouldn't get out of bed for days at a time. And it was just like, come on, there's got like, there's got to be some way to get some balance here. Well, and, uh, what were your thoughts during those times when, when you would experience him going through that? At first, I thought maybe it was work related. He traveled a lot for business. And so I'm like, hey, maybe you're just jet lagged. And then um, we had a dog. Well, we, I still have her. She's, she's awesome. And he wanted to take her with him a lot of places. And he talked about making her his service dog to help him with, um, his PTSD. And in my mind, um, it was kind of like, do you need the service dog? Or are you looking for an excuse to bring our dog with you everywhere? Cause he didn't want to go through and get an actual service dog, which was what I recommended. I was like, Hey, look, let's get an actual service dog. That's trained to meet your needs. And he's like, no, 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 I'll teach her because she's young. She's like two years old. She's the perfect age. And he did do some training with her, but she was never up to the level of like an actual service dog. So I, I always felt guilty whenever he would wear, like he put like her little service dog vest on her and take her to the airport and to restaurants and grocery stores and places where animals aren't really supposed to be. She was very well behaved. She never did anything wrong. She looked like a service dog and acted like one, but I knew she didn't have the training. And I felt like if there was a need there for him to have this dog, he should get one that was qualified. And he didn't appreciate any pushback on that. So I I did ease up. But during this time, he began to, like, break things. 
he would throw his phone if he got frustrated and um he never like punched any walls or did any there was never any lasting damage to anything his phone did shatter once but normally you know he had it in a case and he would just toss it and it would bounce around but it was fine and i noticed the escalation but i didn't know what to do about it i was just kind of like okay like he's not hurting anyone generally nothing's getting broken you know he might throw office supplies across the room or a book or something that wasn't gonna break or it wasn't hurting anything but it was scary and then he started to grab my arm he would grab me like right here on my forearm uh, forearm on my like right in my upper arm and he would on your bicep yeah my biceps he would squeeze until i would have little fingerprint shaped bruises on my arm and um but i didn't know what to do because i'm like he's not hitting me and there was one time uh i got mad at him for something and i was gonna go sleep in the living room on the couch because i was like look i'm not gonna kick you out and make you sleep on the couch if i'm mad at you i'll leave it's fine you stay here i'll go to the couch and he came out and hit me with a pillow over and over and over again. And it hurt. Like, it was getting painful. Like, the first time you get whacked with a pillow, no big deal. But, like, after several minutes of it, it starts to hurt. And I almost went to my mom's house. But I felt so silly. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to show up at her house at 2 in the morning because I lost a pillow fight? <laughs> and so I just I felt very silly. And I didn't feel like I had a good enough case to be like hey i need help i'm being hurt this isn't right i didn't feel like it was bad enough for me to justify leaving or or anything like that also too i felt like he needed me and i could help him or you know there's like that complex that women get where they want to save a man and i had always said that was not me but whenever i was put in that position i loved him and i wanted to help him and i wanted to do whatever I could. So I did get into that mentality of, I've just got to help him. I can save him. I can do this. It's going to be fine. And you, you also probably kind of looked at it as he's sick right now. He's not like, he's not doing this out of hate or anger. He's doing this out of mental illness. He's legitimately sick. So again, again, you wanted to help him and kind of help him through that period. Right. Right. And, and I, I did eventually come to my mom and and tell her about some of it once he started hitting me and I was getting bruises on my legs because he figured okay like my if he's hitting me like on my on my upper thighs that's not something people are really going to see it wasn't he wasn't hitting me in noticeable places and and I told my mom about it and she was like well you promised when you married him your wedding vows said in sickness and in health and this is his sickness and and it was for better, for worse, and this was definitely worse. And and even the richer or poorer part, he started spending a lot of money. Um, whenever he would go into his manic phases, he would just blow through cash. And um, it was it was really scary to me because I couldn't even see where all the money was going. Some of it was going for traveling because he loved to travel and that made him feel better. A lot of it was going into our business. Some of it was um, going just disappearing I couldn't trace it at all I found out later that that was going towards drugs and um and his drinking habit which exploded during this time and it just 
I didn't know what to do because at this point we had been married for almost eight years. We had three children. They were all young. Our oldest one was like six when this all started. And so it was just like, okay, I've got to, I've got to keep them safe. So I would put them to bed um, about 30 minutes before he would come home. That way they'd be in a deep sleep. And if there was any fighting, they wouldn't hear it. Most of the fights I tried not to escalate anything. I'm not the type of person to, you know, just sit there and take it though. So sometimes I would have the sarcastic comment or, um, if he was hitting me, I don't remember ever hitting him back. One time I did like, he picked up my laptop and I thought he was going to throw it at me or hit me across the face with it. And I grabbed it and wrestled it away from him. But I, I knew whenever he was in one of these episodes, it was best not to try to fight back. I would just, I would try to protect myself as much as I could, but I knew not to fight back because I knew that would only make it worse. And also too, if he was not himself, if he was under the influence of something or if it was just the mental strain of whatever he was feeling was too great, he had too much pressure. Um, I knew that if I hit back or if I tried to fight him, like that wouldn't make things better. And then later he'd be like, well, look, you, you escalated it even further. And then there would be blame on myself. So I tried to stay as blameless as possible. Um, it just, it got to be such a mess. And I finally, he hit me across the face and I told my mom and I was like, what am I supposed to do? And she still was encouraging me to stay with him. And she talked about, you know, I could have the kids spend the night at her house if I needed to for a couple of nights. And I just, I was, I wasn't willing to do that because I felt like that was me giving up my kids and um, they had never been hurt or anything. And so I, there was, I wasn't worried about them being taken from it, from me, but I knew whenever she suggested that I realized that that could be a possibility if he started beating the kids. I mean, I could lose my children. Right. And that was, that was very eye opening for me. Um, but then my grandpa came into town and he's an old preacher and very, um, very traditional, very much, um, against divorce and all of that. But he looked over at me and he saw my bruise and he's like, what happened? And I didn't really say much. I didn't have to. He was like, he hit you, didn't he? And I was like, yes. And I was so ashamed because I felt like I was a failure. And I don't know what he said, but after I left, I went home. And then my mom called me later that night and she told me she had a blank check for me to um, for a retainer fee for a divorce lawyer. And I could move in with her and the kids, we could all live there. And, and I was really encouraged. I was like, Oh good. Like there's somebody on my side. Um, my best friend had also, she told me later that she and her husband were discussing how they could renovate their house so that the kids and I could live with them if we needed to. And so just knowing that I had some people in my corner, I had a support group that was very helpful. And so I, I'm sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. Um, so it kind of says a lot that your, your grandpa, who you said is a old school, you know, kind of you said he's a preacher? 
Yes. Um, he's an old school preacher, so he obviously doesn't believe in divorce. He believes that you should stick it out to the end. And he he even said that, you know, you need to get a divorce. That's kind of, that's, yeah. that's powerful. And I think for him to say that to me, it was just, it was so eye-opening, like, wow. Like, because before that, I felt like I knew God loved me, but I felt so far away. And I felt so far from God and from his love. And I wasn't, I was in church and I was reading my Bible and I was praying and I was just praying for a way out. But I felt like, it felt like I could just hear my prayers echoing back to me and there was nothing there. And whenever grandpa was on my side, I was like, okay, if grandpa loves me enough to say that I can get a divorce, I mean, it wasn't like I was getting permission from God, but it was just a reminder to me that God loves me and he doesn't want me to be in this position. Right. And so um, that was just so it meant so much to me. And then so I, I did. I told my husband that I wanted a divorce. And that was terrifying because I didn't know what he was going to do. Um, the kids were at my mom's house. Um I finally was like, okay, yeah, if you want to keep him for the weekend because he's going to be home and I don't know how things are going to go. I didn't tell her that I was actually going to ask for a divorce, but I think she understood that. And he packed up his suitcase and he was walking out the door. And in that moment, I should have held my tongue. I should have been quiet and let him go. But I couldn't. I just I couldn't watch him leave because at this point I still loved him so much. He was he was my high school sweetheart. He was, you know, we, we'd been together for 12 years. We'd been married for seven and it, or no, we'd been married for eight years at this point. And it was just my whole adult life. I had been in love with this man and I just, I said, wait. And he turned around and I looked him right in the eyes. And I mean, we had grown up and changed, but your eyes don't really change that much. And like when I looked into his eyes, I just saw him as an 18 year old kid again. And I was like, please stay. And we both cried and we ate ice cream and we watched movies all afternoon and we talked and it was a real connection. And he had these lucid moments like this where we would sit down and we would talk and it was always such a good conversation whenever he was like that. He was himself. And I felt like that was such a gift to have that day with him. And then the next day um, we were talking and, and I said, I wasn't going to leave him. I wasn't going to get a divorce. I, I loved him and we were going to work through this. We could, we could get through it. It was going to be okay. Um, but he had to stop hitting me. Like, and I really don't think that was an unreasonable request. I don't think so. <laughs> and, and he, and I expected him to be like, yeah, of course. Like, I don't want to hurt you. And let's work this out. But instead he just got angry and he said that he couldn't promise me that. And so if, if I said that I was going to divorce him, if he hit me, that was a conditional promise and marriage was supposed to be unconditional love. And I just, I don't even believe in unconditional love at that point. Like I just, I was like, that's not how love works. God can love us unconditionally, but I can't love you unconditionally. And he hit me across the face and I, I got a bruise and had a black eye. And 
we were in the car actually at this point. Um, sorry, I didn't. I don't mean to be confusing. No, we were fine. we were in the car driving, um, and he he backhanded me, just right across the face, and and I said, "I'm leaving. That's it." And the two younger kids, they were actually in the back seat. Um, my daughter was two, and then my son was four, and he whipped the car off at the next exit on the interstate, turned around and started driving like a maniac. And all I could think was at least the one kid's at school and he's going to be okay. The rest of us are going to die because he is going to kill us. We were weaving in and out of traffic. We got off the interstate and we were just driving through stop signs and we drove by the police station and I just was hoping somebody would see what was going on and come and rescue us but no one did we were probably going too fast for them to even realize that we went by um and he he drove home and i jumped out of the car i grabbed the kids out of their car seats and i ran in the house locked the door behind us i mean i knew he could come in behind us if he wanted to but at least it would slow him down but he didn't he pulled out of the driveway and i never saw him again um, I went to my mom's house, dropped the kids off, told her what happened, and then I went to the police station, and I filed a police report for reckless driving, and I filed one for him against against him for the domestic violence, and they took pictures of my face and took my statement, and then they went and arrested him, and they and I had a restraining order. He couldn't come near me or talk to me until um, after we had a court date. So I just, I felt free in that moment. I I texted one of my friends. I was like, he can't call me. He can't harass me. He can't hurt me. He can't be anywhere near the kids because the kids are with me. We're safe for like a month. This is going to be a really good month. I don't have to worry about anything. Like I just felt like a weight was lifted. My kids were going to be safe for the next month. I didn't have to worry about them. I didn't have to get hit. Like it was going to be great. And then this was a Thursday, Sunday morning, I got a call from the police and they said that my husband had been in an accident and I couldn't go visit him because I had the restraining order, but I figured somebody in my family would want to go see him. It would be a good thing to, to do to ask, you know, cause any normal wife would be like, Oh, where's my husband at? I want to go see him. So I asked him, I was just like, Oh, well, what hospital is he at? you know, can I go see him or what's going on there? How is he? And the officer like took a moment and and then he told me that my husband had been in a fatal car accident and he was dead at the scene. And I just, I lost control of my legs. I just kind of crumpled to the ground and, and I was just in tears. And, And I know to anyone listening, as of right now, I haven't really painted my husband in the best light. He sounds like a horrible person. And you're probably like, well, good for him. You're better off without him. But that was not how I felt in that moment. I would have given anything for him to be alive. I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to talk to him. But I wanted the best for him. I wanted him to be well. I wanted him to go to rehab. I wanted him to put his life back together. I wanted him to be happy. Not with me, but I wanted him to be happy. And then I went inside the house and 
the kids were up because they're always up early and they're standing there on, at the top of the staircase asking me if they can have breakfast and oh I just I didn't even know what to do and then he, they could see me crying and so they're asking me what's wrong and, and I I don't lie to my kids I try not to and I try to shelter them from things that are difficult but at the same time when they ask the hard questions, I believe kids need an age-appropriate answer. And so um, I ran up the stairs and I pulled them all into my lap and told them that their dad was in an accident and he was dead. And the, the two-year-old, she didn't know anything. And the four-year-old was confused but sad. But my, my older son, he, he understood and he started crying and the other two went off and started playing they figured they weren't going to get breakfast they didn't need to sit there i guess <laughs> but my son and i we just we held each other and he looked up at me with tears in his eyes just so i don't have a dad anymore mm. and you you this is the the question one of those hard questions that you you can't be prepared for it just hits you out of the blue but um, I really believe God gave me the answer for this. And I, I just said, no, sweetie, you do have a dad. God is our father, and he's going to take care of us. And um, later, um, I did. we talked about how his dad was in heaven. And because he made a profession of faith, and, and I, I believe he's in heaven. I believe he was saved. I, I don't believe that God would take someone's salvation away. And I don't believe that just because he made some mistakes and I don't know, you know, how, how much mental illness affects somebody to the extent of, you know, it's not something I've experienced firsthand. I've never dealt with those things. So I don't believe that, I don't believe that God would, you know, would punish someone like that. So I, I do believe he's in heaven, but we talked about how, you know, Jesus, was on earth and his father was in heaven and they were separated, um, you know, like how we are. And that made him feel better to know that, you know, Jesus really does understand. And, um, it was, it was the hardest few weeks of my life afterwards, just trying to put my life back together. Cause it really did feel like, nothing was going to be okay ever again. And my only consolation was I knew my kids were safe and I knew he couldn't hurt us. And I was thankful that we weren't in the car with them when he got into an accident. I don't really know what happened that night. Um, he, some of his medications made him very sleepy and he would, it was almost like, narcolepsy where you just fall asleep anywhere so I'm not sure if he fell asleep at the wheel he didn't have any alcohol in his system so I know he wasn't drunk driving um he may have even committed suicide I really I don't know I try not to speculate about it too much because it's so painful um if he did commit suicide I honestly believe he did it out of um trying to keep us safe. I think he may have realized that he almost hurt his children. And I think he knew that his violence towards me was getting worse. 
I hope he didn't com- commit suicide. And I certainly hope it wasn't on my account or because I was going to leave him. But um, there's definitely, there was some guilt there. And I had to come to terms with the fact that I can't be responsible for someone else's actions, yeah. especially yeah. when I don't even know what his actions or his motives were. But I know that's a thing that a lot of, a lot of other victims that I've talked to have talked about, you know, your abuser blames you. It's your fault. You made them upset. You spent too much money or you made a mistake or you burned dinner or you ruined their clothes in the laundry. There are so many petty things that people can get upset about and abuse people over. And they always make it feel like it's your fault, but it isn't. You are responsible for what you do and how other people react to that. That is their responsibility. And that was something that seems, it seems so simple, but it's so difficult to believe that whenever you're the one in that position. Um, but yeah, the, the rebuilding process was so difficult trying to trust people especially with my kids. I had a lot of trouble letting people watch my kids because at this point now I was the sole provider and, you know, it was, I was blessed that God provided me with work, but I also needed help with the kids. And I was scared to have people interacting with them when I wasn't around. I was scared that they would ask big questions to the wrong people I was scared that somebody was going to hurt them. I just, I was in a constant state of fear and that took, that took time. That took time to heal. Um, I, I, um, one of my friends, we were talking and he just, he was like, you know, you're so broken. And that hurt me so much. I mean, it was, I believe it was true. And it's one of those things where sometimes you need to hear the hard truth. And, and I just kind of sat there and I was like, yeah, I am broken, but I'm not going to stay broken. Cause you, you imagine that, you know, when someone says like their whole life shattered, you imagine glass breaking, like a, a an expensive vase getting thrown to the ground. And I, and I looked over at him and I was like, you know, I'm not made of glass, right? Like I'm not a vase. I'm not a fancy vase pretty vase that you put flowers in I'm more of a Lego house and it's it sounds silly and cheesy and it's not pretty and fancy but when you smash a Lego house you can rebuild it and that's what God has done for me my life is completely different now Um, but as I rebuilt it I was able to choose what pieces would stay some pieces got lost forever some pieces didn't go back the same way but I'm very happy with the life I have now. There's a lot more stability. I have a lot more control over my decisions. And um, it's just, it's been nice. I, I don't want the same things at 30 that I wanted at 20. And so it was kind of like a midlife crisis that I got thrown into. But coming out the other side, I'm in a good place. And um I started dating a couple years ago and I, I was terrified 
Like I said, it was a constant state of fear. I used a fake name. I did use real pictures because I, I wanted to be honest, but also I wanted to protect myself. Right. And um, I realized quickly that if they bothered reading my profile, saying that I was a single mom of three kids scared away a lot of men, which was fine. They had that right to be scared. Um, <laughs> that weeds out the weak. <laughs> Right. Well, and also too, I mean, whenever, whenever you're dating with kids, you're going to be a little more serious. You're going to, they're also like, I didn't have as much time as somebody who didn't have kids. They would have a whole lot more availability. I base, I, I told them whenever I, I met, um, anybody, you know, whenever I was talking to anybody, I was like, I'm not going to meet you on the weekends. The weekend is when my kids are out of school and I'm going to be with them because they don't get to see me much during the week. And I'm not giving up my weekends, so we have to make it work. So you set you set boundaries like right at right at the beginning. Absolutely. Well, and when in my first marriage, we were so young, and we had been together since we were teenagers, so we didn't have a lot of boundaries. It was it was very um, very difficult for me to say no to anything. Anytime there was a decision we made, whether it was, let's buy this house, or let's get a car, let's get a pet, let's go here for dinner. I mean, I, I felt like I didn't have the right to say no for the longest time because I was just along for the ride for the first couple of years because I didn't care, really. It was just like, oh, I just want to be with you. And then when you're married and you're with each other all the time you have other wants and other needs and it's like, Hey, I, I want to be heard. I want to be listened to. And some of that disappeared. I, I felt like I lost my voice and I wasn't going to give it up this time, which I, again, I, there was guilt with that too. Cause I felt like I was a sweet, compliant, almost very submissive wife. And I felt like whoever got me the second time around I was going to be sassy and sarcastic and bossy and stubborn. And so I was like, well, might as well tell them up front what they're in for. <laughs> <laughs> but um, whenever I met, um, well, actually, before I met my husband, I, I also realized if the three kids didn't scare someone away, telling them that I was a widow and that I had been abused, that cleared the room faster than you would imagine. I didn't even meet up with any of those people because wow. they were just like, nope, next. Yeah, that's probably, a like, some guys would probably consider that a lot of baggage. It was a lot of baggage, and I, and I, I, I was honest about it. Basically, what I told um, my, my current husband whenever I met him, I told him, I was like, look, I have baggage. It's not the three kids. Yeah. My are not baggage they are people but there is a lot of baggage there there's a lot of emotional baggage there I have a lot of triggers and I explaining that to him was it took a long time for me to get up the courage to really tell him because a lot of them weren't things that would bother me when we were dating so it wasn't stuff I had to tell him right away um Financial control was very important to me. It, I, I told him at one point that I wasn't sure I ever wanted to merge our finances if we got married because I wanted to know that I was the only person who could spend my money. And I think that hurt his feelings a little bit. 
but I under, you know, he understood where I was coming from. I was like, I know that you would never put us in a, like a bankruptcy type of situation. I know that you would never spend a bunch of money without telling me. I know that you don't have any addictive habits, but I also need to be able to look at my bank account and be like, this is mine for me to spend and it's mine for me to save. Again, you're, and you're putting up those safety barriers. Like I was, I, I needed to protect myself. I needed to protect my children. And, and I told him, you know, another thing was the kids. I was really, um, crazy about a lot of things at first. It was, I didn't want him watching the kids. I didn't want him correcting the kids. I didn't want anything. And then um, once we got engaged, um, he started babysitting um, the kids for me. And I knew that it was important for him to get to know the kids. Um, I also, um, when we were first dating, I ran a background check on him and his close family members without telling him or asking him for permission. I was like, hey, like I did this because I have kids. And he later, whenever I, I did tell him afterwards what I had done and, and he, he laughed about it and he was like, you have a right to know it's fine. There's, <laughs> I don't have anything, any secrets or anything to hide from you. Um, I was glad he took it so well because I used a fake name when we first met because I didn't even want him to be able to Google me before we went out for <laughs> lunch. So um, I felt like there was a bit of a double standard there. And he didn't see it that way. He basically... Was, he was very understanding, and anytime I had any um, anything that I needed as far as a boundary or anything like that, he was like, well, if that's what you need, you've been through a lot, that's fine. I don't need the same boundaries. I trust you, and, and I came around. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, you know, when, by the time we got married, I, I was happy to add him to, to my bank account, and, and I wasn't scared financially anymore. And that was eye-opening for me. And I and at that point, I revisited my list of triggers. I didn't have it written down. I'm not that, not that, not, I don't know if crazy is the right word, but I'm not that. <laughs> Organized. <OCD. laughs> yeah, I was just like, oh, it, it was a mental list. But I went through and I realized I'm not scared anymore. I don't feel like a victim anymore. I, I feel happy and free and, and I feel safe. And when, when, whenever I was dating my husband, my, my second husband, um, I said, I trust you to him. Um, before, before we ever said, I love you one day, we were just talking and I was like, you know, I, I trust you. And I don't know if you know how much that means, but I didn't think I'd ever trust anybody again. And he just gave me a hug and was like, it's okay. I trust you too. <laughs> and I knew it meant a lot coming from him too, because he was a reserved person. And so I was like, Hey, like he trusts me too. This is great. But for me, it was just so eye opening because I realized how far I had come on my healing journey in that moment, because I didn't think I would love again. I didn't think I would trust again. I was pretty determined to build myself a really big wall, really hide myself away. And 
I would have my kids and me and my dog and we were going to be safe forever alone. And I realized that wasn't God's plan either. He wanted me to, to reach out and to find love again and to trust people and to be open. And that's one reason why I want to share my story is because this is one way that I can reach out. It's easy to take all of those negative um, memories and feelings and emotions and bottle them up and hold on to them. And you can nurse that bitterness forever and you can hold on to those wounds and you can stay the victim for the rest of your life if you want to. But if you let go of it, if you process it and give it to God and you have to make decisions with your head, not your heart, because my heart said, Nope, we've been hurt. We're going to stay out of this. But I knew growing up, our family was open and we trusted each other and we loved each other. And I knew that that's the healthy relationship and I could have that, but I would have to open up. And if I stayed closed off from everything, that wasn't going to help me and it wasn't going to help my kids. And I was lonely and I, I wanted that companionship that I'd experienced at the beginning of my marriage whenever we were both, I think we were both happy. I was happy and we just felt so connected. We were a team. We were on the same page and I love just having a partner in crime <laughs> and, you know, somebody to travel with and, play with the kids and I'm a homebody. So I was more of, Hey, like, let's just quiet nights in as a family. That's what I wanted. And how do you meet somebody like that? Right. right. If you have to go out to meet people, you're going to meet the people that want to go out. Yeah. Um, I had a pretty good idea of what I didn't want. And I knew a few things I was looking for, but whenever I met, um, my current husband, it just, it all clicked. It was like, wow, like this is the guy. Like, I mean, I didn't think that right away. Like, took, <laughs> if I had told him on the first date, we're going to get married. He would have been like, hmm, I'm not calling this one back. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, you know, it took a little while for me to, to see that I could trust him and I, and that he would be, you know, make a great dad to the kids and, and, and all of that, but it was just so nice to to meet somebody with no expectations. He he didn't have, you know, there are some people, once you get in close to 30, people are more ready to settle down, and he wasn't like, hey, I want you to meet my parents. Hey, we're going to, we're going to go visit, you know, grandma, and we're going <laughs> to, um, you know, we have to be married by this time or, you know, there was no, there was no schedule. There was no time frame. It was, it wasn't like, Hey, I need to decide in three dates whether or not this is going to work. Otherwise I'm going to move on to the next person. Like, right. None of that. Uh, there were a lot of people, especially in the online dating, they were just like, Hey, let's lay it all out on the line. We're going to have our conversation. We're going to decide if we're right for each other today. And <laughs> then we'll see from there. And it was just like, I can't do that. I, I mean, I love to have in-depth conversations and really get to know people and ask deep questions, but 
to to have to decide well this isn't going to work because of this or maybe this would work because we both like this like to figure that out on the first date I can't do that (laughs) it's kind of a lot it is it is a lot and he was one of the first people I feel like I've ever met that didn't expect anything from me because even growing up your parents expect you to behave and to get good grades and Mm -hmm. he was just interested in getting to know me as a person and it meant so much not to be treated like a commodity or a toy or or as a lesser person or as a you know there are so many different ways that women are viewed and he basically saw me as an equal and as a person as someone who was worth time and that meant so much because most people looked at me and saw me as broken. And at the beginning of our marriage with my first husband, I felt like an equal and I felt like a friend. But towards the end, I felt like a piece of property. I felt like something he owned. I felt like someone he could use. He could make me run errands and do things for him. And so it was like, half slave, half mother, almost. It was an awful situation. And I, I was afraid of disappointing him and upsetting him. And that wasn't a healthy marriage. It took, it took a lot for me to see that because it felt like it happened so fast. Some things were very gradual. The abuse started gradually, but the shift was like day and night. He'd be fine one day and then the next day it was. Right. Well, and once it happened, it, it, I mean, he went from being diagnosed with um, PTSD and then 10 months later he was dead. So in that 10 month frame, it went from, hey, this is a problem. We need to see what's going on here that there's something wrong and we need help to we had gone through three or four mental um, illness diagnoses. We had gone through the abuse escalating from squeezing my arm and throwing things across the room to leaving bruises on my face and giving me a black eye and fearing for my life. And then he was gone. And it was just such such a roller coaster. And it, it just... People always say things like, why would you stay in an abusive relationship? And a lot of times women answer, well, I stayed for my kids. And I'd heard that before. And I thought they meant they didn't want their kids to be from a broken home. Because you do hear that too. And people are like, oh, like I didn't want to get a divorce because I wanted, we wanted to work things out for the kids. Right. In an abusive situation, it's different because I wanted to stay for my kids so that I could protect them. Because if I left, he would have visitation, if not 50-50 custody of the kids. And he he told me once that if I left, he was going to get full custody of the kids, which I knew he couldn't do. But the threat was there. He was going to fight me for the kids. Right. Because he he knew that that was important to me. And, and I truly do believe he loved the kids. Um, but 
I stayed because as long as we were married, he would go out drinking with his friends and I could stay home and keep the kids safe. He would go travel and I would have weeks alone with the kids where I was taking care of them and they were safe. And I knew that if we got a divorce, he was going to have the kids as often as he could because the more often he has the kids, the less child support he has to pay. And the more unhappy I would be because I would be worried about the kids. And I didn't know who he would have watching the kids while he was at work. I didn't know if he was going to be going out and partying with his friends and leaving them at home with, you know, a neglectful babysitter or even alone by themselves. And I was so scared for them. And a lot of times you will do anything for your kids, even if that means you being the wall and the barrier between them and an abusive spouse. But So would you say that was one reason why you stayed in that relationship? Definitely. That was one reason. That and I just was very conflicted about about my marriage vows, really. I was when my mom told me that, hey, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, I was like, You're right. This is worse and this is sickness, but I promised I would be there. And she also turned it on me and said, if I was the one who was struggling with mental illnesses, I wouldn't want him to leave me, which is true. I mean, if you think about it, put yourself in that person's place. But it got to the point at the end where if I was being abusive and I thought I was a danger to my children, I would absolutely want someone to step in and keep them safe. And so at the end, whenever I was going to get a divorce, if someone had asked me to put myself in his position, it wouldn't have been a problem. I was like, you know what? It wouldn't matter if, if it was the other way around and I was the one who was going to hurt somebody, I would want the kids to be safe. And, and I also, another thing I was raised with was the husband comes first and then the children, which I think is weird. It, it is slightly but weird. I was raised the same way. <laughs> children, children are a lot supposed to be a lot more needy than adults Mm. and so I and that was that was another thing that I discussed with my current husband before we got married I was like look you're a Christian I don't know if you were raised in the same uh church environment I was where you heard that um children are supposed to you know children are important but your husband or your wife is supposed to come first and he was like no not really it was more like family (laughs) take care of family I was like yeah well children are needy and if it if they're hungry and you're hungry I'm gonna feed them first I mean if I can make a big meal and feed everybody sure but if we're making sandwiches you get the last sandwich and you can't have your feelings hurt because of that because that's petty but um but that's how it was in my first marriage um my husband actually when our when our first son was starting to eat solid foods I would make him eggs for breakfast um, when, you know, and he was a toddler and my husband was like, you never made me eggs. And, and I was like, I'm sorry. I thought if you wanted eggs, you would, well, first of all, I thought you would ask, or <laughs> I thought you could make them yourself cause you're a grown man. <laughs> 
And and there were just there were a lot of moments like that. And I know part of it was just getting married young. He went from living with his parents. He lived on his own for a year or two in college, and then we got married. So there there wasn't a whole lot of transition time. Whereas the husband I have now, he was living on his own for ten years. And so in that time, he learned how to take care of himself, <laughs> and that was it was really nice to know um, that we were on the same page. And and I. I told him, I was like, you know, I don't expect you to wait on me hand and foot or to, if you do something for the kids, I'm not going to be like, oh, how come you didn't do that for me too? Like, they're kids. They need stuff. Right. And I feel like we have a much more balanced family life because I've learned a lot and grown a lot and just being older and more mature there are times, though, when I do have to kind of recalibrate because I tend to um, I tend to overreact. If my husband raises his voice, um, I cringe. And That's I mean, a- even if it's like if we're watching a football game and, you know, somebody drops a pass and he's like, no, then I, I mean, I've I've gotten better. It's It's been a couple of years, so I've. I'm still recovering and still healing, but the first time he like raised his voice like that, like I almost had to leave the room because it, it shook me up so badly. It's almost, it's almost like PTSD. I think I, I've, I haven't been like diagnosed with anything, but I think I did have like a mild PTSD. Um, I'm not really sure because PTSD isn't something that you ever recover from. You're not, you're never cured of it. It's just, It's more of a, the triggers are always there. Sometimes it's stronger. Sometimes it's less prominent. So there's, there's a chance I I do see some of those tendencies in myself and I wonder about it, but I'm, I'm not brave enough to like actually go and sit down and talk about it to like a a psychologist or somebody like, I don't want to know, um, where I'm at now, basically, like I, I did like a group therapy for, um, when my husband passed away for grief and I wasn't ready for any other kind of counseling at the time because there was so much grief. I wasn't sure how to pull that apart from possible PTSD or any other issues and anger. And, you know, there was just a lot of emotions there, but grief has a lot of those emotions too, a lot of the same emotions. And so once I was through the grieving process, um, I didn't want to go back for any more therapy because, um, I felt like I was making good progress on my own. And so it was kind of like, Hey, I'm doing good. Don't change anything. But I do think therapy is very helpful. And I think it's good for people to have a place where they can talk to somebody and they can, you know, just express those emotions and have a professional help identify what they're feeling and why. Yeah. Um, for me, yoga has been very helpful because the last few minutes of class, you just lay there on your mat and you have like that Shavasana where you're, you're not letting your mind wander, but you have, it's almost like a, it's a meditation. Basically you just have that time to have one thing that you're focused on. And for the first year or two, it was a lot of my intentions. It was focused on 
healing and releasing the grief and the anger and just letting go. And it's not something that gets fixed overnight. It's not, you just wake up one day and feel better and you're like, Oh God healed me. (laughs) It's God leading you through the healing process. And he has comforted me and protected me and kept my children safe. Um, with my, my younger kids, they haven't really gone through the grieving process as much. My daughter doesn't really remember her dad at all. And so I'm sure that's going to come up later, maybe when she's a teenager even. And she's going to grieve then because she didn't get to know her dad. Uh, my middle son, he's very quiet. We've had some good conversations. I think he's processed everything as well as he can, but I'm sure as he gets older too, he's going to have more questions because he was, he was four. He was so young. My older son, we had, we had a lot of anger issues there and he did have, we, we did go see a therapist and there was a lot to work through with him, but they're all very happy, um, with their new stepdad. Um, he actually, he adopted them this past year, which was wonderful. Um, that whole and blending a family is always, um, something that I looked at in my friend's lives and, you know, from as an outsider looking in thinking, Oh, what a mess. Oh, how complicated. Oh, how scary for us. It was a lot simpler because my husband, my new husband, he doesn't have any kids. Um, we have a baby together now, but you know, it wasn't like we were bringing in other children into the marriage right away. So it was blending him with my three kids. It wasn't, there weren't as many people and with not having, um, an ex-husband that made it a little bit easier. There's no jealousy and stuff like that. There was grief and it was kind of, there were a lot of things that I felt like were more complicated because of the situation, like, um, simple things like family photos, you know, the kids still have pictures of their dad in their room. I don't have any, you know, like not in my, you know, when we got married, he didn't come into the room and, Oh, there's our old family portrait. <laughs> that was weird. Right. But, um, but I did, I moved all the pictures to the kids' rooms that way they could have those memories. And so that was something that was good for them. But I was worried it might be weird for my new husband, but he has handled it so patiently. And he told the kids if they ever needed to talk to him, you know, he's there for them. Uh, That's amazing. He lets me talk to him about stuff that I, because at first I told him, I was like, look, if, if I need to deal with any of these emotions and these fears and all of these issues, I've got people. I can talk to a therapist. I can talk to my best friend. I can talk to my mom. And he was like, you can talk to me. And when he said that, like we were, we were seriously dating at the time. But when he said that, I was like, eh, he's one. Like, (laughs) he does that. He doesn't know what he's getting himself into. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the rules of dating is you do not talk about your exes. (laughs) And so the fact that he's like, hey, I know you're going through a lot. I know you're dealing with grief. And it just, it meant so much that he was willing to do that for me. Because I don't know that I would have done that for somebody that I had 
just been dating for a few months. After he said that, I was like, I love you so much. And I would absolutely do the same for you if you were in this situation. <laughs> but before he said that, I wouldn't, I don't know what I would have said, you know? Right. It just, it was, it was amazing to me that somebody could be so understanding when they'd never been through anything like that. Wow. And that's wow. another thing for abuse victims. You don't have to find other victims to open up. Sometimes it's helpful. And I've talked to other women who've been abused, not very many, but a few, and it's been wonderful. And, and I feel like we've been able to help each other. But if you find somebody who truly cares about you, whether it's a sister or a friend or, you know, if you're dating somebody and they are, and they are open like this, that's wonderful. You, they don't have you don't have to have a specific criteria for, OK, in order to help me, you must have gone through X, Y, Z. Like, right. If someone wants to help you, let them help you. But also, too. When it comes to friends and family members and, and especially someone you're dating, you don't want to use them as a therapist because that will put a strain on your relationship, too. And it's not something my husband and I talk about a whole lot. But, I mean, I had nightmares. Even still, sometimes I, I wake up in the middle of the night in a panic because I dreamed that my ex-husband was going to kill me or something like that. Or one night I dreamed that he kidnapped the kids and I'll just wake up crying and shaking. And whenever somebody wakes me up in the middle of the night for something, I'm not the most gracious person. I get kind of <laughs> cranky about it. But anytime that's happened, like I, my first reaction was, okay, I don't want to wake up my husband because I don't want to, I don't want to bother him. But he usually wakes up because, um, I'm, I'm not the quietest person in the world. <laughs> and then I'm just kind of, I'm like shaking and he can feel me shaking. So he'll, he'll wake up and he'll just hold me and, and ask if, if I want to tell him what happened, I can tell him what happened and he'll listen. If I don't want to talk about it, he doesn't push me to talk about it or anything, but he just, he's so understanding for someone who's never been there. That's truly amazing. Your story is the epitome of rising above, and uh, I'm really glad you came on to share. Um, before we wrap this up, um, so you 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 guys blended your families, uh, or more you, more like you blended your family with him, and you're a yoga instructor, and you are involved in church. I'm assuming, right? Yes, we actually. Um... I teach kids Sunday school as a substitute teacher. It's kind of hard to commit to being there every week with the baby. But we are also were the activity director for the young adults, so for the college and career age, which is fun because I like to pretend that I'm still young. <laughs> so we're like, oh, it's like 10 o'clock. We should get in bed. We should go to sleep. We're tired. We're old. Guys, go home. But, but we talk big. We're like, oh yeah, like we're gonna we're gonna pull, you know, an all nighter. We're gonna do video game nights, <laughs> and movie nights. We're gonna go play, um, you know, laser tag and airsoft and all this stuff. <laughs> and we're probably gonna die someday. <laughs> but so you're involved in all these things. What does life look like now for you? You have a young you have a young family still. Um, you've been through all these tragic 
these tragic life experiences, what does life look like in the future? If people looked at me right now, they would never know that I'd been through anything. My children are happy. The oldest one, he's a preteen now, and it's like kind of scary. <laughs> but they're they're involved in as many extracurriculars as they can be with COVID. Right. But they they like to play sports and music, and we have. It looks a lot like my life growing up, like what I wanted. We have, you know, we'll play Uno on a Friday night and order pizza, and Right now, I'm sure as the kids get older, they're going to want to be more independent as teenagers. But for now, everybody likes to be home and together. And I love that we look normal to the average person. We just look like a happy family whenever we sit together in church. Um, yeah, if somebody walked in that didn't know us, they wouldn't think anything of it. And it's even like our baby. He looks like such a perfect blend of my husband and I, but he even like resembles his siblings, even though he's only their half brother. Like they all look like they're just all brothers and sisters. That's and, awesome. Which again, that's not super important, to, you know, for how they look and stuff, but still it's just, it's nice that people, we don't stick out. Right. They don't look I, at you and they, they don't notice something different about you. Because for the first, probably the, definitely the first four to six months, but really for the first year after my first husband died, every picture I look at, my eyes look so sad and hollow and empty. And I just, and whenever I would look in the mirror at myself, I got used to it because I looked so broke, like you could look at me and even strangers would come up to me and ask me if I was okay sometimes. Wow. Like I, I looked very much not okay. And it was, it's just such a change to now, even people who know me, I think they forget. I think they forget that I ever went through anything. And a lot of them don't know about the abuse because it did happen so quickly. I didn't, tell a whole lot of people and it it was one of those things that if we had gotten a divorce and everything had come to a head people would have known right. but right. even then I probably I would have tried to keep it you know that's not I don't like to air my dirty laundry that's not something you like to share with a lot of people but if we had gotten a divorce people would have been like oh like something went down right but and there would have you know they would have just been more, more drama, I guess. Yeah. But it was, it was so difficult because whenever he died, people came out of the woodwork to offer their love and their support and their condolences. And I think that really helped with the healing process, even though they didn't know all the pain I was feeling, they knew that there was pain. And most of them thought it was just the pain of losing a loved one, not the pain of being abused by a loved one and watching them slowly turn into someone you don't recognize okay. and then losing them. But I didn't get any of that support until after he died. My own family, most of them didn't want to support me until grandpa put them in their place. <laughs> 
I had, you know, my best friend, she was going to help out, but nobody was going to give me that kind of support. They weren't bringing me meals. They weren't going to, you know, and a lot of them didn't know that I was being abused, but still, I feel like if I had opened up to them, they wouldn't have known what to do. Right. But if someone dies, we know what to do. We instinctively bring them food and we watch their kids and we hold them and we let them talk and we let them breathe. When someone's being abused, that's what they need. They need space, but they need comfort. They need some time to themselves, but also they need to be with people and they need to be heard. And that was something that I wasn't given until after he died. But if you're if you're out there and you've got somebody that you know who's going through something like this, or if you're going through it yourself, you don't have to have the right words to say, but just be there for that person. And if you're going through an abusive situation, Find people who love you, somebody, a neighbor, somebody at church, your your pastor's wife, maybe family members, and if they don't know what to say, and if they're uncomfortable, you have to learn to vocalize your needs. That way people can really help you, and you might not even know what you need, and what I needed might be different from what you need, and that's okay. Yeah. But once I realized what I needed, I told people, I need someone to talk to. I need a hug. I need to go grab lunch. I need you to treat me like everything is normal. Whatever the, whatever it was. And once you learn to verbalize that and tell people what you need, then, you would be surprised how many people will give you what you need. Right. There are so many people that would do that for you. Well, I think you are extremely brave for coming on and sharing your story. And I believe that your story will help so many other women, um, particularly women who are in abusive and domestically abusive situations. And um, so I guess with that being said, we'll just kind of end, end it there. Is there anything else you would like to say before we go? Not that I can think of. I think we pretty much covered it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity um, onto your platform. I appreciate it. You're welcome, and thank you for coming on. And this is our second time doing it. Uh, the yeah. first time didn't turn out so well, and this this one turned out great. So again, thank you, and uh, I will be sending you some shirts for the podcast. So awesome! All right. Well, if you need anything else i mean i know third time's the charm hopefully this is not necessary but um but yeah it's it's been a pleasure I'm, I'm glad to have gotten to know you yeah it's nice nice talking with you and uh nice getting to know you as well so all right well you have a good night and uh hopefully i'll chat with you again sometime all right sounds good all right bye bye